Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I think you're really going to enjoy my guest today. He's phenomenal and I have a great interview lined up. But before I get to that, I wanted to point out it's imperative to the success of the podcast that you are liking, rating, following, and sharing the show with your friends and family. It's how I can bring on nationally recognized guests like the guests that I have on today. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do that. So today's guest is James Lavelle, and he is an internationally recognized clinical pharmacist, author, and board-certified clinical nutritionist with over 35 years of clinical experience. Lavelle is best known for his expertise in performance health and integrative care with personally seeing thousands of clients over the years. He is the author of more than 20 books, including Cracking the Metabolic Code, Nutritional Cost of Drugs, and his latest book, Your Blood Never Lies. Lavelle is an appointed faculty member for the Integrative Medicine Postgraduate Program at George Washington University School. Of Health and Sciences. His expertise spans from super athletes to individuals struggling with chronic health complaints. He has worked with organizations and athletes from the Chicago Blackhawks, Anaheim Ducks, San Jose Sharks, Philadelphia Eagles, New England Patriots, Houston Astros, and the best for last, the St. Louis Cardinals. Lavelle gained national recognition as National Clinician of the Year in 2012 by the Natural Products Association for his pioneering work in furthering the professional standards of integrative care. In 2017, he was Educator of the Year for the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine, which is how I know him. As clinical co-chair of that society, he has trained thousands of healthcare professionals on the value of predictive health and helping medical practices incorporate lifestyle, diet, and natural therapies as part of the equation for their patients. Most recently, he was selected to be the Integrative Medicine Program Director for the NFL Hall of Fame Health Informants Program in 2019. I appreciate your time, Jim, and thank you so much for being on the show. Well, it's great to be on it. I'm excited about our our time together. Uh, Lots of accomplishments there. But I know for, I'm a St. Louis-based podcast, so I know they're not going to be able to focus. So first thing first, what did you do for the St. Louis Cardinals? No, it was interesting. I got brought in to just kind of work up the chemistry of some of the Cardinal players and kind of get diet dialed in. Uh, Were they struggling with anything where some nutrients could make a difference and really just try to optimize their performance? And that's what I do, whether it's NHL, I mean, Major League Soccer, NFL players, Pro Football Hall of Famers, Special Forces, you name it. I like dialing people in. And and that means if you're struggling with an autoimmune disorder, if you're struggling with being overweight, I want to dial people in to give them their best chance to have the vitality they deserve because athletes are more than just athletes. They deserve to feel the best they can, you know, years after they retire. And that's what I did, you know. And did you do that through blood work or symptoms or how were you optimizing there? Yeah, always blood work. You know, we actually used our metabolic code platform because it's a 40,000 algorithm based, you know, decision maker that goes through the cloud and, and kind of spits out where are the five key areas that your basically your systems or networks are out of balance. You know, like adrenal thyroid pancreas, for example, is a network and it's an important one. And usually one of the first ones to go out on athletes, you know, so yeah, it's it's labs, it's blood, sometimes it's urine, saliva, it's questionnaires, subjective surveys, it's biometrics, 
It's this little thing, wearable devices, right? All those things make a difference. Is that a Whoop or an Apple Watch or what it's is it? It's just that? an Apple Watch, yeah. You know, I use this mainly to remind me that uh, as a 62-year-old, I better get out in my garage and train. I wear the Aura ring. Aura's nice. Aura's a very nice, you know, product. There's a lot of them. Actually, there's a new device that goes on an Apple that actually will calculate your percent body fat, and it's 95% to the accuracy of a DEXA scan. So, I mean, there are cool new gadgets that are coming on we can wear. I just ordered one, so I'm really excited to get it in and and, and uh, give it a spin. And I saw there's some you know platforms coming out, healthcare platforms that are like integrating your wearables into the software. I think it's called Calcium that we just looked at, where it's dumping that information in for the provider to look at before they're consult. So it's pretty cool where the technology is going. Oh, absolutely. We've had that for a while. And I think you have to have that data. It's just, it's, it's invaluable if people are, are giving it to you. Yeah, that's awesome. So you've written a number of books with more on the way, right? You're doing a metabolic code 2.0. Code 2.0. I've got a performance book that I've got to get out. I got two books in edit right now. So uh, in my spare time. <laughs> well, I've heard in other podcast interviews and your books, you say to master your metabolism, you need to balance your hormones. And in the book, you talk about blood sugar, thyroid, sex hormones, adrenals. So I would like for you to explain those areas to the listeners. I mean, the first thing you have to understand is how do we get out of balance, right? And so how we get out of balance is through this concept, which is in the medical literature now called metaflammation. And metaflammation is metabolic inflammation. It's due to the chemistry you have today. So all the baggage you've brought in from the time you were in your mother's womb, through your epigenetics, the stress you're under, the kind of food you ate, how did you exercise, what'd you get exposed to, you know, all and what drug therapy maybe you've been on in the past or currently, all those things create who you are today. And what happens is, is as your body starts to shift away from being able to manage that metabolic inflammation, there's some really important things that start to happen. You know, first of all, you know, you start to make bad actor lipids. Let's just shelf that one because, you know, okay, it's lipids. The next thing that happens is you start to lose your ability to make ferritin. You end up blocking your ability to store ferritin. Why is ferritin important? Stored form of iron. A lot of people who train a lot end up low in iron. And that ferritin is really important for rebuilding red blood cells. Probably the most important pieces that start to occur. You start to become insulin resistant. So the signaling of metabolic inflammation starts to get you to store fat, which 80% of our population has that issue. 50% of the population is either diabetic or pre-diabetic in the U.S. And so it's really important to understand that now I've got glucose and insulin issues. That's a big problem because now blood pressure changes occur. Subsequently, you know, once you've got chronic stress, and I got to tell you, I don't know too many people over the last few years that chronic stress hasn't been a big issue. And so when you look at cortisol, the higher your cortisol, it shuts down your sex hormones. And so you start to lose your ability to make testosterone if you're a man, uh, proper estradiol if you're a woman. And of course, that strikes right to our vitality, our self-esteem, our potency in the world. We know that, you know, low testosterone is associated with, you know, men gaining weight, losing muscle mass, changes in mood. I call it the whatever syndrome, right? You know, a man gets to that point where, you know, hey, let's go to a baseball game together. I got the tickets. My treat. 
I mean, I'd have to get in the car. <laughs> Man, I'd have to yeah. go there and sit there. Are you kidding me? Right? It's the whatever syndrome. And I think that, so what starts to happen is that all of these systems starts to work against each other. And I think one of the most striking ones, when you look at glycans, so there's a test called glycan age, where it measures the anti-inflammatory glycans versus pro-inflammatory glycans in your blood. And it turns out for women, when they hit menopause, when they lose their estradiol, they immediately go from having an anti-inflammatory glycan, which is a structural component of every cell in your body, to pro-inflammatory glycans, which now leads to things like small vessel disease, more women post-menopause die of heart disease than men. So the point being is, is that then we add, when you add estradiol back, they switch off their pro-inflammatory glycans and go back to anti-inflammatory. So the net result of this is, is that orchestrating hormonal balance is incredibly important because it manages the process of metaflammation, which of course the other term related to that is inflam aging. So when your cortisol's high and your insulin gets high and your glucose goes up and your thyroid hormone goes down, you gain weight, you feel fatigued, you're crashing midday, you don't have the zest for life you should have. And then when you start to see the, the downstream effects of that, meaning that as my cortisol is going up and the stress is high and maybe I'm eating poorly, maybe I've had a rich history of antibiotics. Like when I was a kid, I thought it was a part of my meal plan. You know, I mean, the pink stuff came with every meal was bubblegum flavored. I was like, cool, bubblegum <laughs> flavored liquid again, right? I mean, all that stuff was happening. As you get to that, you start to understand that this excited, sympathetic dominant, you know, cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, you start to break down your gut. And now all of a sudden my immune system gets activated and I'm throwing out these inflammatory compounds and now my joints hurt, my hips are hurting. God, I got to get out and exercise? Really? I have to move? Come on. And so that, in a, I guess, in a whirlwind tour, that's why hormones are so important because they're going to help you manage this process of aging. I know for me as a 62-year-old, I still want to be able to, you know, enjoy my life in the most active way possible. I still want to feel that vitality. I still want to feel that, you know, sexual desire. You know, I want to be a good partner to my spouse. I, you know, I want that positivism. And I think you can't escape the need of balancing your hormones to accomplish that. Yeah, you've also said, and I believe you have to maintain your muscle mass as you age. Right. And, and testosterone, you know, for men and women is extremely important to maintain that mass. So explain what you see with atrophy as we get older with the muscle mass. Well, you know, sarcopenia is what it's called. And sarcopenia is really the looming epidemic in the United States. Why it's important is, first of all, your muscles probably create more hormones than any other organ system in your body. Right. They're called myokines. And so muscles can be your friend and breaking down muscle can be your enemy. As you develop insulin resistance, you create more fat in your muscle. You're not able to generate as much force or as energy or strength. And so the real problem starts to become that now you start to create instability, right? So the most blatant example is when you're in your 70s and if you go to step up a step and you don't have good brain coherence, meaning your brain is telling your muscles what to do and your muscles have the strength to go through it, 
it puts you at risk for things like falls. And why that's so important is, I mean, it used to be that, you know, osteoporosis, that was like the little silver-haired, blue-eyed, frail little woman or the Asian woman. Three in 10 cases of osteoporosis are now men. So when you fall, you increase the risk of a break, and that can have drastic consequences, everything from death in 20% of the cases in geriatric cases to 50% of people never walk independently. Again, they need a walker, they need cane, they need assist. And so in the most drastic situation, when you're losing muscle as you age, it creates that inability for you to maintain stability in your biomechanics and your structure. And then from that same standpoint, and you just have to remember that, you know, when your nervous system is getting overloaded and, you know, probably maybe one or two of your people listening have trouble with sleep or don't get enough sleep. I know it's rare, right? <laughs> Very rare. Yeah, right. You know, it's an epidemic. <laughs> so basically you kind of create this environment of neuroinflammation. You know, your the brain, it's maybe not on fire like a full blown when you hear brain on fire, but there's still this erosion of your brain accurately signaling what your body should be doing, both on the biomechanic level as well as on the hormonal level. And that's called allostatic load. Another term that's in the literature, I'm not making any of these terms up. And what allostatic load is about is the loss of these really big terms, metabolic flexibility, metabolic reserve, and metabolic durability. How resilient am I to the insults of life, whether it's psycho-emotional, physical, maybe trauma from an accident? We know that when men have low testosterone, for example, and they either go into a surgery or they have an adverse event, like an acute event, like a, an accident, low testosterone is absolutely correlated to an 88% increased risk of adverse event, 88%. That's massive. And so while I'm not in the camp of, you know, driving super physiologic, you know, how, how I looked at when I'm 20, guess what? I'm never going to get there at 62. But I sure can't keep good lean mass on me as I'm aging, and allow myself that stability. And I think we lose out on that. But here's what people were told. Eh, well, it used to be, eh, you're over 40 now. You're going to get fat and lose muscle. Now we hear, ah, you're over 30 now. <laughs> you know, that's like because people are losing their, yeah, we've lowered our standards a lot because more and more people are losing their hormones earlier and now we've got all this over-the-counter use of adulterated and products that aren't for human use that create a tremendous problem. I just talked to a gentleman this morning who got on SARMs, a very educated guy, got on SARMs, was on them for about a year, and his testosterone went to 100. And so, but you can buy those everywhere. And we've got an epidemic of young males buying these types of products. And that doesn't even include... Oh, yeah, use terkesterone, which uh, will elevate, and what I've seen, elevates liver enzymes in individuals. So I think there's a real issue in people grasping the concept of how do I really manage my health? Like, let's get the excitement out of it. Let's get the wow, oh, the Tibetan goji berries that have been picked by a monk in the moonlight. And it's going <laughs> to create this incredible vitality for you. And your skin's going to be renewed. You'll have no more wrinkles. You'll have a full head of hair. 
I, you can tell I haven't taken it. So, <laughs> you know, we got to get out of that. I think your hair is looking pretty well, good. You know, I've got to work on it. But the point being is <laughs> we've got to start to create a mindset of what I tell people all the time. You know what? If you're going to come work with me, it's work. It's work, but it's worth it because you're going to have consistency of feeling well. And that's why you need to look at your metabolism. Go to places that have a more complete approach to your health as a consumer. And they're going to give you good guidance on diet, give you good guidance on exercise. I can't tell you how many people are over-exercising at the age of 60. You know, they're going to a 20-year-old trainer and, and they're training them like they're getting ready for a Spartan race. <laughs> you know, nobody's looking at the wearable data, which by the way, these things are valuable. I didn't know if you know this, but this will tell you when you should breathe. It is incredible. <laughs> I mean, I look for every four hours I'm told to breathe and then I start breathing again and I'm not lightheaded anymore. I mean, it's, it's crazy. You bring up a great point with your concerns for some of the stuff that you can buy online, these not-for-human-use peptides, these SARMs. You're seeing these over-the-counter testosterone boosters promoted everywhere, the big hurts all over sports TV, telling you to buy the supplement. It's going to increase your testosterone. When the reality is uh, we see a lot of young patients come in on those supplements, and I'm not sure if we've ever seen it increase somebody's testosterone level enough to be clinically significant. And there are concerns of elevated liver enzymes in the patients taking the oral testosterone boosters. Yeah, it's pretty hard to do it. I mean, it's interesting. I, I mean, I've designed products for 10 different companies in the professional space. I mean, I've, I've been active as that as a clinical pharmacist. I've, I just love formulating. I think there are some options there that can act as an adjunct or as early, like when you're in that early phase. But I mean, look, once you've crashed it and the brain isn't telling the, the Leydig cells of the testicles to get moving, you're going to have to do something and it's going to have to be managed professionally in order to really get that under control. Do you think uh, young men should be able to buy those things over the counter? Look, I think the epidemic right now, I mean, look, people are buying peptides for lab use only. I don't know how they're getting away with that. Well, because they're not approved for human use. So therefore the FDA is like, well, they're not approved for human use. So we don't regulate them, uh, which is a weird, I think, it's just strange. So that's one area. I think that you have SARMs, I believe, is the looming epidemic because they are really being sold. And I'm not saying that there's not some value in the research in SARMs or some good research on a couple of those, say, in HIV patients, prostate cancer, uh, cachexia. But it's not, you know, everybody's taking them way too long. They're not for human use still. So, you know, why are we doing these experiments? And it's because we get a lot of pundits that are in the social media pumping this stuff that aren't giving out responsible information. And look, at least let's talk about, gee, if you choose to, to do this, you should get a blood test. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, look at your blood. You know, I wrote a book called Your Blood Never Lies for a reason. And I think that, so those are the two super big categories that I think are the looming epidemic of, you know, not for human use. People are buying this stuff and they're just putting it in them. And especially in the young culture where they want, you know, they want these accelerated results. That's one. And then the other one is, you know, dietary supplements that are not responsibly made. Like for me, I always look, it doesn't have to be NSF sport, but if it's an NSF facility, if they're doing things like informed choice, if they're doing things that show quality. And once again, bottom line is, you know, with supplementation, you know, you could have a true label, like a true label could be, yeah, we're using this really crappy ashwagandha and we're telling you that it is. 
it's more than just truth in the label. It's, is there effectiveness? And I think that's one of the big issues that's there too. So there's adulteration. There's, I think uh, that's a big issue as well. And the for human use dietary supplement side. Yeah, all the supplements that we use are from an NSF facility. So we're on the same page there, especially after my husband's experience with the supplement, which I told you before we got on the show with his liver failure. So I was like, mm, we're not going down that road ever again. So you talked about brain on fire and antibiotics. I want to talk about leaky gut and how it does impact your brain and what you see in a clinical setting. And so this is like, I have lots of questions here, how you treat it, how you diagnose it, all of these things. Let's just start with some of the basics. Maybe just explain what leaky gut is, how, I think there's a lot of people that have it that don't even realize they have it. So let's start there. I remember when I read a book back in the early 80s and started in practice in like 1984, you know, the Candida Connection. And that kind of got me on that journey of looking at gut permeability problems. And back when I wrote the Metabolic Code book, the initial one back in 2002, and I was talking about gut permeability, you know, there was very few studies out on gut permeability at that time. And I saw it as a major issue because I experienced it. I mean, I, you know, how I got in this field was really having a messed up metabolism by the time I was 20, even though I qualified for the, you know, U.S. nationals and bodybuilding and was... You know, training looked pretty good. Man, did I have some health issues. So gut permeability is basically this. You have one cell layer thick and three principal interfaces of your body. The, the, you have the, the blood-brain barrier. That's one cell layer thick. That's it. You have the endothelium. The inner lining of your arteries is one cell layer thick with a glycocalyx coating that keeps it protected. And then you've got your epithelial cells or your brush border cells of your intestine. One cell layer thick. And everything we do is either going to help those epithelial cells to stay healthy and they stay tightly packed together. And now you can absorb nutrients the way you were meant to absorb them. Now, if you take NSAIDs, if you take propound pump inhibitors, if you're on antibiotics, if you're exposed to a lot of glyphosates, right? Any number of things can start to change these tight junctions and now it gaps. And that creates gut permeability. Now things can get through that gap. And so there's something called bacterial translocation where bugs normally wouldn't be able to get through and get down into the bloodstream and then have a reaction, start to creep through there. You start to get reactive to food. So you can say, wait a second, I could eat peanut butter like a champ when I was a kid. I ate a half a jar of Jif a day. Now I'm reacting to peanut butter. What happened? Did they change the Jif? No, you changed. You know, your chemistry changed. And when you get a permeable gut, it increases a couple of different areas. One, you get antigen presenting cell activation. So that means that you have immune cells that take that information that went through that leaky gut and goes, uh-oh, time to make an allergen out of this. So there's one area where people develop allergic or a, what's called a food sensitivity reaction. The other issue with the permeability, because not only do those cells gap, they start to kind of shrivel, you lose the integrity of nutrient absorption. So now nutrients you should be getting from your food, you're no longer able to absorb. That's the second piece. Third piece is, is nobody's really eating that healthy of a diet for the most part. And I'm not talking about being extreme. You know, you don't have to juice wheatgrass and wear nubby Birkenstocks and do a morning sun salute in order to be healthy. I'm just talking about there's something called vegetables. And so I really believe in a plant-forward diet. Why? Because you need resistant starch to feed the microbiome of your gut 
so it can survive and it makes the nutrients to keep those epithelial cells nice and chunky. They stay full. One of the biggest things that breaks down this relationship is when you're under chronic stress because it turns out there's a nervous system between the gut and the brain called the enteric nervous system. And so when you're on, it's two-way communication. So you can mess up your gut and it can send inflammation signaling to your brain. And now your brain turns on the immune system uh, via what's called the microglial cells. And now all of a sudden your brain's on fire. You're making a bunch of anti, a bunch of oxidative stress markers. You're attacking your neurons, big problems. You can also get stressed out and send the signal to the gut more of the cytokine interleukin-6. And when interleukin-6 goes up, it sends a signal into these cells and it goes to a, a compound. I know you said a lot of your folks are kind of geeks on this stuff, so I'm going to give it to you. I'll give it to you yeah. full force. <laughs> Claudin-2. As Claudin-2 gets upregulated and the tight junctions, the proteins that are like this between the cells, break. And your zonulin levels go up, which can go up due to the stress or can go up due to dysbiosis, meaning I'm eating the wrong foods, the pH of my gut's wrong because of the medications I'm on, any number of reasons why your gut flora gets disturbed. That can increase your zonulin and it breaks. Why is it so important? Once again, we're a systems of systems in our body. And so when the gut breaks down, the immune system comes into action because we're sending this information through the enteric nervous system to the brain. Now the brain starts to get in a pro-inflammatory stance. And you combine that with the persistent metabolic inflammation that's due to kind of adrenaline and noradrenaline, not enough acetylcholine, not enough parasympathetic tone, which by the way, why these are important, what's your resting heart rate? What's your two-minute recovery from exercise? Are you sympathetic dominant? Where's your blood pressure at? Those things are clues or windows into what's going on with your physiology. And now all of a sudden you start creating, if you look at, you know, Fasano's work from Harvard, he believes all autoimmunity begins in the gut. I think it's hard to parse that out. I think you could have environmental burden that then triggers the gut and then the gut alters the immune system. You could be exposed to mold if your genes are sensitive to that. And now all of a sudden you're triggering a bunch of inflammation. You can overtrain. I mean, I still remember, I mean, I had a 63-year-old CEO, sold her company. She's going to Orange Theory twice a day and are getting her heart rate up to 200 and wondering why she has anxiety and can't sleep. And I have men in the same situation, right? So it's one of those things where when your gut gets permeable, your immune system gets activated, you lose nutrients, you start to become more reactive to foods. And now all of a sudden you're that person that, that says, uh, wow, why am I thinking so slow? Why do I have what I call pushing a thought through jello syndrome? You know, I'm not quick. I'm not responsive. Don't do a meeting after 2 p.m. because I'm shot. And that's the importance of gut permeability. How do we fix it? So I don't know which blood test you're using to test for the, the food sensitivities, but we're using the Cyrix test at Victory. And I, what we have found that it's sometimes challenging for a patient to understand the difference between a food allergy, and I think they're thinking like an anaphylactic peanut reaction where they could die versus a food sensitivity. I would like for you to kind of walk through how you explain that to a patient and some of the symptoms, like it doesn't have to be you're dying from eating the food. It could be bloating or diarrhea or stuff like that. 
Well, you know, I do a lot of education on this area. I, Infinite Allergy Labs is who I use, and I do a lot of education for them. So there's different categories of immune reaction to a food. IgE, anaphylaxis, wheels, campery, throat closing off. Then there's something called IgG4. IgG4 is the immune reaction that happens to block IgE. It basically gets in the way of the IgG event happening. IgG4 is absolutely, in the clinical papers over the last five years, associated with the development of autoimmune behaviors in your chemistry. So I want to know what I'm sensitive to. That's IgG4. And obviously, IgG is, you know, it's important. Some people go, well, if you eat a food a lot, you're more likely to have that. Well, if you eat a food a lot and you're having a massive reaction to a certain food, you got a leaky gut causing that massive reaction. So IgG, and there are plenty of studies correlating IgG to heart disease, IgG to obesity. And then, of course, the last is this Alzheimer's, mental disorders, in addition to irritable bowel syndrome, colitis, all the obvious, gas, bloating, mood changes. You may not even realize that you're, say you do an advanced lipid panel and your lipid particle size is, you know, really tiny lipids and you're making a lot of inflammatory, you know, lipoproteins like apolipoprotein B. That could be due to the fact that you're triggering inflammatory response to the food you're eating. And, and I always talk to people about, look, you've got this bucket of inflammation in your body. And, and if it's overflowing with inflammatory juice, you want to get that ladle in there and start bailing that out any way you can. And food allergy testing and sensitivity testing does that. The last one, of course, is the C3 complement. So C3BD is the innate immune system. And when you trigger that, it increases the intensity of your IgG by about 10,000 fold. So I look at it and the understanding of, because a lot of these 10 years ago, if you read about IgG4 or you even read about IgG, C3BD wasn't even being discussed. Papers back in 2010 were going, eh, we don't know if this stuff matters. But if you look at papers over the last couple of years, they're going, uh-oh, I guess it mattered. And so it's really important to identify what you're reacting to, because guess what? Your hips might hurt. You may find yourself not recovering from exercise like you should. You may find that your mood is flat. You could be more anxious. You could drive the obvious skin condition stuff, the leak, you know, the alternating constipation, diarrhea, kind of the IBS stuff, colitis. I mean, any of those things can be driven by that. And you mentioned the PPIs. There's a lot of people taking those. And I don't think they maybe fully appreciate the impact that it's having on their gut health. Oh, I mean, just right on point. I think PPIs, if you've got a bleeding ulcer, you want to use a PPI for eight to 10 weeks. The issue that we have is that people really aren't given any guidance on how to eat. Do they need a digestive enzyme? Uh, you know, do they have dysbiosis? You know, do they, do they do a you know, a stool test that looked at unfriendly flora that needs to be cleaned up. Not as dramatic as SIBO, which of course is there, but just the fact that there's an imbalance in the flora, because once you take a PPI and you knock out your hydrochloric acid, you don't absorb protein, you reduce magnesium absorption, vitamin D absorption, B12 absorption, right? Calcium absorption, all this stuff that's happening. And then when you combine that with low test in a man, there's a lot of men taking PPIs, right? They eat too much. They eat too often. They eat too late. They pick the wrong foods. Don't chew their food. Why would you <laughs> chew your food? Isn't it a gullet? <laughs> I mean, I still remember I'm sitting in an airport at 7 a.m. after doing a talk the day before in Green Bay, Wisconsin. 
I'm looking at this 15-year-old kid that's got a piece of pizza for breakfast. And he folded it over, took a big bite. Of course, he had a Pepsi in his other in his hand. He chewed twice, drank to get it down. And I swear I saw the point of the pizza tip going down his throat. <laughs> Chewing your food is so important. And timing of food. Like, I'm not a big advocate for the 18-6 every day that the fat everybody's doing right now, I got to be honest. I mean, I've done a lot of research on, you know, time-restricted eating and all, you know, I mean, lecture for companies in that regard. And I look at lab tests on people that 18-6 it every day. They don't look great. I do think people need to restrict their eating time, though, and that there is something to circadian rhythms. And uh, when you don't do those things, I think it starts to set you up for trouble. You know, you're supposed to eat during the day and you're supposed to take all those nutrients and, and let your body repair yourself at night. You're not supposed to eat a bunch of food at night, especially late at night. Now, you know, you go, well, look at the French. You got to throw the French out. I mean, they only work 32-hour work weeks. They take a month off in August. They, their plate sizes are really small. Sometimes people will take culturally and go, yeah, but look at this example. Yeah, but you got to examine the whole culture. You know, what's going on? And so, you know, for me, you know, when a man has low testosterone, they're eating poorly and they're on a PPI, they're setting themselves up for osteopenia and osteoporosis. Bottom line. And I just want to make sure the listeners know a PPI, something like Prilosec would be an example of a PPI. Prilosec, Nexium, you know, those are the kind of common ones. Protonics, you know, those are the biggies. And you mentioned uh, the lovely bubblegum flavored antibiotics you, you lived on. So let's talk about antibiotics and needing to follow that up with probiotics or what you do to address the gut, what happens to the gut when you're on an antibiotic and what people should do after they take an antibiotic? So, I mean, the first thing is antibiotics are absolutely essential. People's lives are saved due to antibiotics. Overprescribed, and that's just out of the journals in medicine. I'm not saying something controversial there. When you take an antibiotic, you wipe out your beneficial flora, basically. Some worse than others. That's why women, they're told they may get a vaginal yeast infection if they take a probiotic. You could get thrush, your tongue gets coated, right? All those kind of good things. Growing candida. But the biggest thing is, is you wipe out the good flora, and then all of a sudden, the more unfriendly flora start to grow. So when you're on an antibiotic, you actually should take a probiotic at the same time, but just hours away from when you take your antibiotic. Okay. So at least two hours away from your antibiotic dose, you take a probiotic. And that helps to maintain the reduction of antibiotic-induced diarrhea, especially important in the elderly or in the pediatric population. But nobody likes getting diarrhea. I mean, I don't know. At least yeah. I don't know a lot of people anyway. Nobody comes in and says, could you please help me get more diarrhea? So, you know, it's one of those deals where... You want to keep that integrity of the gut strong. Now, it's not just as simple as taking a probiotic. You need to get fiber and you need what's called resistant starch. Why do you need fiber or resistant starch? It's starch that doesn't break down and become fuel for your body, but it does get to the large intestine and become fuel for your microbiome so that they can grow. One of the most important things about that is maintaining an optimum pH. So when you block stomach acid, when you don't chew your food, when you don't adequately digest your food, you can start to develop alterations in pH or the acidity or alkalinity of your gut. It's actually good to have a little more of an acidic gut, even though it creates systemic alkalinity for your body, which is what you want. And when you don't have prebiotics, 
in addition to probiotics. And I'm going to tell you right now, I have a lot of people that do food allergy tests and they say, why can't I get over this? Are you still stressed out? Is your cortisol still high? You know, if your stress levels are high, it's hard to really repair your gut unless you countermeasure for that. You know, the the most valuable herb in every culture since the beginning of recorded medicine has been herbs that help people deal with stress. So since the beginning of recorded medicine, everybody knew that stress was a big deal. Yeah. But what we do is we run until we break. Yeah. And then we need Xanax is our new adaptogen, Prozac, PPIs, because the gut gets messed up due to stress, right? Yeah. Um, anti-inflammatories, right? We're, we wait until we break. And look, sometimes you break in spite of doing all the best things. Yeah. And- I know personally, you know, I watched my father, you know, who lived at 91 years of age. I watched him need medication at points in his life. And at the same time, he, you know, he made it to 91. And it was real important for him at a few stages that he had, you know, certain meds. So it's not a condemnation of medicine. It's let's just look at all the toolkit instead of one. I think you can get by, you'll get, you'll get less infections if you keep your immune system healthy. What's the big challenge of that? When you get under chronic stress or you're eating poorly, or for example, in the case of the pandemic, what happened is you got into what was called T-cell senescence. Your T-killer cells got lazy and they couldn't fight the good fight anymore. And so keeping our metabolic reserve, going back to the beginning of our conversation, keeping your body in homeostasis, whether it's hormones, peptides, I mean, I think peptides are the next toolkit box people should be looking at. I mean, they're in medicine. I mean... Insulin was the first peptide, yeah. right? Nutrients, diet, mindfulness. Yes, learn how to breathe. Don't rely on your watch to tell you it's time to take a deep breath. And then understand engaging what's appropriate exercise for an individual. So that's kind of the importance of the gut and what happens and why just taking antibiotics or PPIs. Look, 24% of the drugs on the market are projected to disrupt the microbiome. Metformin antidepressants, statins. It's not just the PPIs and the antibiotics. Oh, yeah, and the statins NSAID, are another are big others. one. A lot of other drugs that do it. Corticosteroids, you know. So you mentioned the fiber starch, and we were talking a little bit about diet. So let's talk about the keto diet for a second before we move on to peptides. <laughs> and you just keep slinging it. Okay. <laughs> you beat me up. Sorry. <laughs> And it it can be like a religion for people. So I'm not trying to be controversial with the keto diet here, but I'm just kind of curious your thoughts with the gut and the fiber starch comment. I think there's very selective things where you need to use a keto diet, but even when you do, you need to add starch to it, resistant starch, meaning you have to have fiber added to it. So like in a, you know, a glioma, you know, like a tumor in the brain, uh, in epilepsy, there's some evidence of ketogenic diets. For me, I'm not a huge fan because when people tell me they feel a lot better from a ketogenic diet, oh, my brain was so alive. It usually tells me they've got really bad insulin resistance, that their brain's lost the ability to utilize glucose appropriately. I can understand it if people want to do a short burst of a ketogenic diet, maybe to kind of kickstart, maybe getting the insulin receptors cooled down a little bit. But I think in general, what I have subscribed to for the last 38 years, it really hasn't changed. Modified low carb. Find out the sliding scale of your carbohydrate intake based on your individual needs, how much you exercise, what's your genetic predispositions, you know, how much carb do you actually need? And that's important. And then low inflammatory, low allergen. 
And I think when you start there, you get the bell curve pretty corrected. And then, you know, for people that need to do a ketogenic diet for a short period of time, I got it. But most of the people I talk to that have been doing ketogenic for longer than six months start talking about how they start feeling sluggish. They don't feel as good. I'm not anti-ketogenic, but I'm not on that bandwagon. And I think it works for select people. So I'm fascinated by insulin resistance. And I'm just kind of curious how you're addressing that. Well, you know, it's interesting. I wrote a wrote a chapter in a textbook called Diabetes and Cancer, Epidemiologic Links and Molecular Evidence. You don't need to take sleeping pills. You just open up a page to this book and read it and it will put you out. It was that <laughs> deep, right? I mean, it's like, oh my God, too many words. So how I deal with insulin resistance. I think the first step is making sure that people have adequate magnesium pools because nobody's eating greens they're not getting magnesium. You need magnesium to make your insulin receptor work. You need chromium to get your insulin receptor work. You need B vitamins to get your insulin receptor work. Sometimes you use alpha lipoic acid. It helps to sensitize the insulin receptor. Well, what causes insulin resistance? Well, on the base level, it's poor diet. Like if you're sucking down lots of Cokes and getting a lot of sugar, a lot of carbs, starches, even whole grain ones. I have a lot of vegetarians that come to me that are on more of a carbotarian diet or a breadotarian diet. Uh, they're not vegetarian, veg meaning eat a vegetable. And so the point being is, is that you can drive it through diet. You could also drive it through excessive exercise or not enough exercise. So if you pump a lot of cortisol, cortisol causes your insulin receptor to get less functional so that it keeps your blood sugar up because your body doesn't understand a two-hour run from a white tiger chasing you. The only difference is, is a white tiger would never chase you for two hours. It's over very quick, <laughs> Yeah. right? You either get away, you fight, you win, or you're lunch. It's, you know, it's real simple. You know, that type of chemistry is designed, fight or flight is designed for imminent doom. We now have created a flattening of the cortisol curve where stress hormones are getting kicked out all day long. And that alters the insulin receptor dramatically. You can have something like a pollutant like arsenic has been tied to insulin resistance and arsenic, of course, being found in our pea proteins and our rice that we eat, not yeah. to mention, you know, all the arsenic that went into the environment from, you know, treated lumber for the last 60 years. So that can make it happen. Low sex hormones, testosterone in particular, can be related to poor insulin signaling. So any number of things make that insulin receptor not function. So glucose goes up, you start to create more, you know, fatty acids that get stored in the liver. So non-alcoholic fatty liver, right? Start storing fatty liver. As the insulin goes up, your blood vessels get stiff. And now I'm not getting blood into my kidneys. Hence why so many of our dialysis centers are filled with people that had years of insulin resistance of being diabetic because they were starving the kidneys for blood flow and oxygen, and that created oxidative stress that damages their kidneys. And so that's insulin resistance. And a host of other things happen, right? Yep. Lipids get all bad. You get more oxidized yep. lipids. There's a ton of stuff. Brain, dementia, risk. How I deal with it is get the base nutrients under control. I just want people to start walking. Can you just yeah. walk? Walk yep. for 45 minutes if you can. I got a better idea. Walk to get your mail at the end of the driveway. Don't drive your car. Yeah. You know, just get moving. Yeah. And then let's start talking about exercise. Dietary changes, it's very simple. You're going to cut those, you know, complex carbs down to get things straightened out. Lots of plant forward, green eating, lean proteins, 
maybe a little bit of legumes. And then as you heal the gut, get rid of the major allergens like gluten and dairy, because we know they're messing up a lot of people. I'm not saying if you go to Italy, and I know you've had clients that they go to Italy, they eat pasta, and they go, I didn't gain weight. <laughs> well, yeah, non-hybridized grain. You're not under a lot of stress. You know, right? Yeah. Different phenomena. You're not living in Italy, though. You know, you're yeah. not, you know, you're not, you know, you're not Nas. You know, it's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anymore. So the point being is you have to get manage that diet to kind of restore that insulin receptor. And it may be that after you do those base nutrients and it, look, there's herbs, bitter melon is very good. I mean, probably I think one of the best in the botanical side is bitter melon. And then in, you, when you want to go up, you think of peptides so a peptide on the market for diabetics is like a product called Ozembic, right? Yeah, semaglutide. Yeah, it's called the GLP-1 agonist that help people manage their glucose. Now semaglutide, which is the compound that is Ozembic, being used in the kind of the compounding pharmacy world for people for weight loss. I think it's the hottest thing out there yeah. right now, right? Um, so that's one. But even more importantly, here's the bottom line. When you become insulin resistant, you go from making 38 packets of energy in your cell to shifting to what's called aerobic glycolysis, where you make two packets of energy, 38 packets down to two. So what do people with insulin resistance complain of? I'm so hungry. I need to eat. Well, yeah, you don't have any fuel. You're a gas sucking SUV. You know, that's the way that rolls. And the biggest problem with that chemistry, going back to that book, that I, you know, chapter I wrote in diabetes and cancer, that chemistry, when it sits around long enough, really starts to damage your cells, changes your mitochondrial DNA, and induces what's known as the Warburg effect. And Warburg won the Nobel Prize for, for elucidating how a cancer cell feeds, and that is heightened sugar intake. And so when you're insulin resistant, if you're not going to take mag, you're not going to do chromium, you're not going to do ALA, you're not going to take B vitamins, you're not going to do bitter melon. Hey, I'm not getting my hormones checked. I'm not going to manage my stress hormones. And your glucose goes up and your insulin is up. You are directly walking straight into the face of an increased risk of cancer. I don't think that's explained to people. How do you make yeah. energy in your cell? Why are you tired? Well, Two packets of energy or 38, what do you pick? You know? Yeah. And uh, my whole family's diabetic. My father was a cancer survivor, being a 50-year diabetic, getting a duodenal adenocarcinoma. I saw it firsthand. My brother was 476 pounds. My mother was obese. All my little Italian aunts and uncles are all <laughs> diabetics. I mean, I've lived, my grandmother was a fingerless, toeless, blind diabetic. She used to see how I grew by feeling my face. When you're a six-year-old yeah. and somebody is feeling your face with amputated digits, it makes a, a little bit of an impression on you on just how devastating insulin resistance is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, not to get, you know, melodramatic, but it's, it's the real deal when you're not dealing with insulin resistance. And guess what? Metabolic inflammation, insulin resistance, and the loss of the HPA axis hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis, telling all your hormones what to do. Those are the two things that really accelerate aging and start to shorten your telomeres and, you know, are going to cause problems with you with chronic disease. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where the semaglutide goes and the quote, anti-aging space, 
right? I mean, is that what you're kind of thinking too? Oh, it's going there full tilt. I mean, I think, you know, another peptide that I think is even more valuable, there's one called MOT-C. So MOT-C is a mitochondrial-derived peptide. And what it does is it gets your mitochondria functioning again, making those 38 packets of energy, renewing. So what happens when your thyroid goes low and your cortisol goes high and your insulin goes up, you make 40% less mitochondria in your cell. You have 40% less powerhouses available in your cell to make energy. So what MOTC does is it helps to restore getting those mitochondria back on track. Actually, it's going to be optimized if you're able to do all the other lifestyle things that we talked about you know, hormones, nutrients, exercise, diet, mindfulness, learning to breathe again, all those things are going to drive that process forward of being energetic, metabolic capacity is high, you know, metabolic reserve is high, or you go down the other path. Are you using any other peptides like BPC or CJC, smorlin, ipamorlin? Yes, to all of them. <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, I chair the International Pepsite Society and we're writing the monographs for them. I love BPC. I've got some killer personal stories about what I've seen with BPC, even with my family members, my son in particular. I love the Primorella and CJC because guess what? When you get under stress or you just turn 40, you stop releasing the growth hormone you're supposed to release. And Ipramorelin and CJC help your body to get back on track with releasing growth hormone, which is going to help you to renew. I love epitalin. And some people with really bad sleep problems, DSIP, Delta sleep inducing peptide is great. I I do a lot of work trying to get people to sleep again, you know, and it's not always a peptide. Sometimes you got to kind of get people to calm down during the day in order to let their brain turn off at night, right? What about tessamorlin? Well, I love tessamorlin. The problem on tessamorlin is getting it. I mean, you know, I, I loved Tessamorelin, that was one of my favorites, personally. But, you know, I think, you know, Ipamorelin and CJC does a good job. I think that as we start to look at peptides and understand that, you know, they all have their place. Do we need to calm down inflammatory signaling? Are we cleaning up senescent cells? Things like Celanc and CMAX for the brain, reducing anxiety. I got a TBI case, a doc that got hit. She's riding a bike, got T-boned by a car. Eight and a half months post-TBI, she can only think for about an hour and a half a day. Two months into using those two nasal sprays and doing all the other things that I do. But the nasal sprays, when she started those, she said, I'm beginning to feel like me again. I can focus for six hours a day. We knew we were getting neuro-regeneration in her again because of how much better she felt. And then, of course, we use synapsin as well, which is a, you know, ginsenicide R3, which is fantastic at downregulating microglial cells. So I think it's, you know, some people right away want to do 15 peptides, whether by injection or inhalation. I'm a big fan of saying, what do you really need now? What might you need to do twice a year? And as we move you through your healing process, what are the new things that you may need? What do you need if you're a long hauler? Now, there's different needs for people. And I think when you're more judicious about targeting those things and not creating unwielding programs that people can't succeed at. You're not doing yourself a service and you're, you're not helping them because a lot of people, you know, there's only, there's two kinds of people. There's Spartans, meaning they're like me, you know, oh, you want me, you know, I come to your clinic, right? And, you know, I've got Amy telling me to do 10 things, 
and it may be five, whatever. We're going to say 10. The first thing I'm going to ask Amy, how come there's not 12? <laughs> That's a Spartan, yeah. right? We'll do all of it. We'll do it yep. exactly right. And we're going to expect results. Not a lot of people are Spartans. Most people are more in that line of help me restore my ability to make better decisions, to get better energy, to have better health, to move the weight, the needle, and give them some things where you get an early win, right? We got to get early wins. Got to get you feeling better. First visit, I need a win. Yep. And if I get that win, I can start to work with that person because they have trust. Yep. And in the end, I still think we're trying to build trust in this integrative, regenerative, alternative, functional, whatever you want to call it, space that we still have that issue of, are we really focused on getting that person's results right away? Or are we interested in the labs and changing the labs? Yeah, that's a great point. I like a lot about that. Yeah. I I may not always give the most complex programs, but believe me, I I understand what's going on with that person. Yeah, Uh, that's a a great point. So we're approaching here on our hour, but I want to ask you one more question. Your top biohacking tip, or what do you do? What What's a, something biohacking you do? I mean, of course, we talked about a lot of them, but. You know, it's interesting because I, I mean, look, I have to, I have to work to stay relatively fit, you know? Uh, so the first thing is, is I really try to manage my cortisol. I mean, I really believe in managing my cortisol and managing my appetite and everybody goes, oh, that's so basic. Yeah, well, try doing it because most people are failing. Yeah. Uh, and how you do that is, well, what nutrients do I need to keep my HPA axis in that allostasis and not be in allostatic load where I'm craving? Because believe me, I've had points in my life where I came home and hugged that tortilla chip bag <laughs> and I ate it until I licked my finger and got all the salt out of the bottom, right? <laughs> that's stress. And so I think that's big. I'm a big believer at my age now. You know, I love ipramorelin, CJC. I want to keep my growth hormone there. I don't want my IGF-1 high and I don't want it low. I just want it responding appropriately. And I think that's really yeah. important. The next one is, is I'm a huge believer in an alkaline diet. Like make sure that you're getting enough magnesium in your diet and enough. And if it's not diet, it's supplementation. The more you work out, the more you need to take it. Because when you alkalinize and your pH is, you know, at least six, five in urine, seven in saliva, that means you have less hydrogen ions, which means you have less oxidation and free radical stress going on. So that's using micronutrients, greens, powders. If you want to drink a green drink, that's really cool for doing that too. And I'd say the last one is, is I really have made it an effort to move throughout my whole life. You know, you really have to make a commitment that you're going to move. And that you're going to exercise. And if you look at the data coming out of Germany as of 2018, 45 minutes of aerobic exercise, five times a week, lengthens your telomeres. Resistance training, valuable for your muscles and you have to do it, but wasn't found to lengthen your telomeres, but helps with insulin resistance more. Hence, you got to do both. Yeah. And that's those are really some of the big keys. I mean, manage the insulin pathway and glucose pathway, manage the HPA axis pathway, Make sure I'm being, you know, really smart about what am I getting exposed to? And then uh, hope for the best. Try to breathe. (laughs) And try to breathe. Well, I really appreciate your time. You're a wealth of knowledge. I mean, there's so many areas that we could continue to talk about. Maybe we'll do a follow-up or something. But I really, really appreciate your time and you being on the show today. Well, thank you, Amy. And I, I love that you're out there really trying to get responsible messages out there about the value 
of this. All these great tools are available to people. And, and you know, all you got to do is ask. I'll be glad to come back. Yeah, I will. 